Well, hey, and welcome to the Quad City Podcast, where we are on mission to make more and better disciples of Jesus everywhere, always. We're so glad you're joining us in that today. Well, before we dive into today's sermon, would you do me a quick favor? Would you go ahead and open your app store and search Quad City Christian Church? Download our app because it's the best way to stay connected with what's happening here at Quad City. If you're new, joining us for the first time, click that new here form as we'd love to reach out and connect with you. You can also submit prayer requests and even give on that same app. It's the best way to stay connected here at Quad City. Well, hey, now that that's out of the way, let's go ahead and dive into our sermon from Sunday. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, everyone. Isn't it great to see that? Uh, And I guess your expiration date on making disciples, we don't have one. We just keep doing it. (laughs) That's good to see. So my name's Ken. I am the uh, Prescott Valley Campus Pastor. So I want to give a big shout out to those of you who are participating at Glassford Hill Middle School. Thank you so much. And welcome to all of you who are in the room. And for those of you who are participating online, whenever, wherever, please come visit us soon. Uh, And we have a seat for you at 8 or 11, not at 9.30. There is a seat. (laughs) And if this is one of your first times visiting us and you would like to get connected, uh, if you're in Prescott, uh, if you want to, uh, that way to do that, exit the auditorium, Connection Central is right there. If you'd like to speak with a pastor, hang a left, that's Pastor's Point. And in Prescott Valley, uh, you just head out to Connection Central, pass the coffee, the donuts, the flower stone pastries, which are oh so good. You just pass there and say hello and We'll help you get connected and answer any questions you might have. So here we are. We're in the book of Romans. We've been doing this since August, and all the messages kind of build on one another. So if you're hitting this midstream, and we are ending chapter 8 out of 16 chapters, so we're very midstream, uh, if you'd like to kind of get your bearings on where we're at, you can go to quadcity.church or search Quad City up YouTube, find our channel, and just binge watch them if you like. It's better than Netflix. Uh, and you can, yeah, you can just kind of get, get caught up to see where we're at. And since it's February, each month we're putting out booklets that look like this. And these booklets contain questions and, and just helpful tools for, to apply the scripture. Because we don't want to gather just to learn. We need to learn, but we want to gather and apply what we've learned. So you can get these uh, it, as you walk into the uh, lobby. Or if you need any now, you can raise your hand. One of our glorious ushers will bring one to you. So... Here we are, February, we're still in Romans, the gospel for everyone. And the word gospel means good news, and it has been a while since we have uh, defined gospel. And so especially if you haven't been here from the beginning, I want to remind you of what the word gospel means, because some of these texts in what we're going to read today, some of these terms should look familiar. And at the very beginning of our series in August, we kind of cobbled it all together and put it in a sentence for you. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that Jesus came, lived, died, resurrected. This is the most important part of my book. Ascended and is returning according to the scriptures. This is the gospel that the apostles proclaimed, that Paul writes about 
It's throughout your, te- your New Testament and proclaiming the gospel, as we saw with Virginia. Like, this is the honor of all who follow Jesus, to get to do this. And it's good news for everyone. Like, it is open to all. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter your past. Uh, it doesn't even matter your present. The gospel is open to everyone. You are not excluded for any reason. And of all the people who have ever lived and taught and tried to show us a better way, in my book, Jesus is the most, he's the top of the heap. And why? Because he did this. He resurrected, right? People who die stay dead, right? And then if they got resurrected, like there's a couple people in the Bible that were resurrected, brought back to life, like Lazarus or Eutychus, and they grew old and died. Jesus died, resurrected, and is alive now, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. There are many people in this world who give great advice and who you could listen to. Uh, great advice on how to live, right? Buddha, Confucius, Plato, Aristotle. These were smart people, even contemporary, like uh, Carol Swain. She's great. Jordan Peterson. He's great. But Jesus is at the top of the heap, and he will one day return and restore all things. And this section of this letter, because we call it the book of Romans, it is a letter that was written to the church in Rome. Uh, it, It is like the victorious crescendo of the good news. If you survived the first three chapters, you'll remember that most of the beginning of the book is all bad news, and it was really hard, and I don't know how many people left because it's just hard to listen to. But we've gotten through that, and today we get to like the best part of the good news. And what's odd about this, and he's saying that as we go through this, the first five verses have six questions all related to hardship, yet we're in the good news. Then Paul asks a rhetorical question just to remind us of God's goodness. Then he confirms the hardship that we have by quoting a passage from like 500 years before. And then like the best part is the last three verses. So at the first, it doesn't sound like it's good news, but Paul has to remind us of the bad news because that's what gives the good news weight. So we're going to look at the themes of these questions, and we're going to dig in. So we're going to start in verse 31, where Paul says, what then shall we say in response to these things? Well, what are these things? What's he talking about? We're going to back it up. You can see we're in chapter 8, verse 31. We're going to back it up to like verse 18, and we're going to walk through a few. These things are our present sufferings. Church in Rome was having a hard time. Creation was and currently is subject to frustration, Creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. And we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. What then shall we say in response to these things? What shall we say in response to the fact that suffering is the normal human condition? That decay is the natural order of things. Remember just a couple weeks ago, Jason said, if you don't believe it, just look in the mirror right? Decay is the natural order of things. What do we say in response to the fact that even though we might follow Jesus, the first fruits of the Spirit, that we have those, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, that life is still hard, and even people in our community, in the faith community, make it hard. What do we say in response to these things? I think the typical, normal, and the natural response to these things is that God doesn't care. That's what the normal response would be. 
to take the perspective that God just set this world in motion, like he rolled the blue marble out and just said, have at it, guys. Enjoy however many years you get. Just go ahead and do your thing. He's not that interested in me personally. And I've been trying to follow Jesus for almost 30 years, and this is the view that I have to constantly overcome. The view that God is not the heavenly father, but he's the absentee father. Here's the support check. Wrote the child support check, the alimony, whatever it is. I'm out. Hope all goes well. That's the normal response to these things, to the, the human condition and suffering. But what did Paul say in response to these things? He said, if God is for us, who can be against us? Like, come on, the water's great. Jump in. Like, there's nothing to worry about. That's his attitude. And I read that, and I'm like, well, Paul, there's lots of things that could be against us. Like, wake up. He is awake. Trust me, we'll get to that. And, and scripture is filled with things that tell us what's against us. And we're not going to get into all of them today, but on Tuesdays, we have a podcast related to the message. If you search gospel for everyone, wherever you get podcasts, it'll come up and we'll talk about some of the things that are against us. But Paul even uses himself as an example of what's against us just back in chapter seven, which keep in mind, this was a letter. So for people, you know, Paul's, someone is reading Paul's letter to the church. He poses this question and about 90 seconds before Paul poses this question, he says these things about himself. Paul says this. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, right? The greatest proponent of the faith calls himself unspiritual. I'm sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. What I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And I think this is something that we all can relate to. That we start to follow Jesus and there's things that we want to do, but we don't. I want to forgive this person who wronged me. You know, it's certain, okay, the thing isn't unforgivable, but it's certainly inexcusable, and I have a real hard time forgiving. It's understandable. I want to, but I don't. I want to tell people about what it means to follow Jesus, but I'm afraid to, or I don't know how to, so I don't. What I hate, I do. I don't want to snap back at my spouse when, when he or she says the thing, but I do. I don't want to be impatient with my kids, but I am. I don't want to look at that thing, but I can't keep, I, I stop on that website or I stop on that channel or I, I look at my phone when I know I shouldn't be looking at what's on my phone. What I hate, I do. Paul says this about himself, and I bet every one of us can relate. And he says, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. In my heart of hearts, I desire to please God. I want to follow Jesus. I want to leave the old life behind. But I see another law at work in me waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. It's almost like Paul speaking out of both sides of his mouth, right? I have all these struggles, yet if God is for us, who can be against us? Like really, there's nothing against me. And for me, that's good news. That if the greatest proponent of our faith, the most accomplished evangelist in the history of evangelism, struggled 
I take comfort in knowing that I'm going to struggle. I'm going to face hardships. And the challenge for us as 21st century Americans is that we typically don't expect hardships. Past 100, 150 years have been the most prosperous period in history for almost the entire world. Since the Civil War, our nation has not known any war within its borders. We've had economic prosperity, technological, medical, social advancement. The United States has eradicated polio, malaria, tuberculosis, measles, mumps, chickenpox. Our health problems are not of disease or lacking, but our health problems are of excess and indulgence. We've had it so good, we have come so far, and it's been so good for so long that we always expect to have it good. And then we come to faith, right? We go from being 21st century Americans to 21st century Christians, and there ought to be a difference, right? Where I have a new kingdom and a new king and a new allegiance. I pledge allegiance to Jesus. We figure it's just going to get better. Why do we think it's going to get better? Because we are told it's going to get better. We are told that we can rebuke disease and it'll flee. We're told that God wants to fill our bank accounts. We are told that God wants us to advance in our career. We are told that God wants to bless us with the best of what this world has to offer. We are told that we can live our best life now as measured by the very world that wages war against our soul. But then we bump into the experience that is our life. We rebuke the disease and pray for the cancer to go away, but it doesn't. We pray and we hope to be spared from the layoffs as the economy scales back. And then we're told to start packing our desk. We beg and we plead for God to transform our marriage, and then we're served divorce papers. You watch with a broken heart as your children or grandchildren make decisions that you know will cost them dearly for decades to come. So what do we do with that? How do we reconcile the disparity between what we hope for and our present reality? What do we do when it feels like it's God, and maybe it's just life, what do we do when it feels like God is against us? Because the question of suffering and hardship can be a problem. For some people, call it, it is called the problem of God, or God's problem, right? If God is all loving and all good, why is there suffering? I can't answer this text that we're looking at today doesn't answer the why, and we don't have time to do it anyway, and I can't answer why, but I can point you to what Paul had to say, and point you to the fact that God did not spare his own son from suffering. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. This reference, did not spare his own son, is not limited to only Jesus's execution, his crucifixion. It includes the fact that he lived a life that experienced a lot of hardship. What kind of hardships? Hardships that are familiar to many of us, most of us. We'll start with a simple one, that he was the oldest of at least seven children. His four brothers are named. Then you got Jesus. 
and it says his sister. So that means there's at least two. There could have been more. And you know what it's like to, if you're the oldest, you know what it's like to be the oldest. My boys have two sisters. They probably wish they didn't. So those hardships, right? Uh, For those of you with sisters, treat them well. And it seems we get the impression that he experienced a pretty severe loss of his father. His earthly father, Joseph, died while he was young because we know nothing of Joseph from the time that Jesus is 12 years old and forward. We know he's never mentioned again. Last time we see them interact is at 12. Jesus becomes an adult. He starts his ministry and his motives are challenged. His identity was questioned. He was homeless. He was ridiculed. He was conspired against. He was lied about. And he was misunderstood by the very people he came to save and serve. He was wrongly accused. He was convicted by this kangaroo court. He was tortured, then brutally executed. And I cannot tell you why you experience suffering, but I can tell you that God did not exempt himself from suffering, right? He shows up in, in Jesus, right? God in a bod, right? He shows up with skin and he experienced the worst of what this life has to offer. The worst. You'd think if God shows up, he's going to experience the best. He experiences the worst. The author of Hebrews put it this way for us. He said, during the days of Jesus's life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Okay, so if you remember your Bible and the story before Jesus goes to be crucified, He goes to this garden of Gethsemane and he prays with loud cries and tears. Scripture says it was like his his sweat was like drops of blood or his drops of blood was like sweat falling to the ground. He was bleeding sweat and he was heard. And the answer was no. The question was, save me, deliver me from this. God said, no, I won't, but I will strengthen you to carry on. He was heard because of his reverent submission. He did not get the answer he wanted. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. In today's parlance, he gets us. You see the commercials. Jesus gets us. He was not spared from the human condition. And many of us, many of you are doing this, have done this right now, where you offer up prayers and petitions with fervent cries to the one who can save you from death or save the one you love from death. Not yet. You're praying things like, not now, not like this, not her, not him, take me. And you are not getting the answer that you want to get, which was exactly what Jesus experienced. And there are no words of comfort If you read the book of Job, it's an Old Testament book all about suffering. And Job's three friends come to comfort him and they did a great job until they started talking. There are no, and then they just blew it. Like it was so bad. They just, they made it worse. There are no words of comfort or satisfactory answers in the midst of suffering. There aren't. So Paul reminds us of something. He said, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Like if Jesus wasn't spared from the human condition, if Jesus wasn't spared from suffering, 
We're going to deal with it. And he gave us his son. If he gave us his son, is he going to graciously give us all things? Now, what could all things mean? Well, it would be nice if it was a 68 Camaro, right? A paid-for house and a bank statement with two commas in it. I'd like that. And some of you have these things, and I say, good for you. Like, good for you. But I really doubt that's what Preacher Paul meant. Now, we are going to get all things. We're told that we're going to receive all things at the right time. We have to back it up. We're in verse 31. We're going to go back to verse 17. Paul says this. The Spirit himself testifies. Like, we are being told. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We are going to inherit something. If indeed we share in his sufferings that comes along with the ride, like we share in his sufferings and Jesus also shared in ours. It kind of goes both directions in order that we may also share in his glory. He's, we don't have any glory to share. He's got all the glory to share. Those who are in Christ, those who are followers of Jesus, who were baptized into Christ, like we just witnessed, we're going to receive an inheritance. And we don't receive this inheritance when our father dies, because he's not going to die. He's eternal. We're going to receive this inheritance when Jesus returns to restore all things and make all things new. So there is a difference between our current hopes and dreams, and some of them come to fruition and some don't. There is a dream or a difference between our present state and our present and our future hopes and dreams and our present reality. Our return, our eternal reality is so much better than anything we could hope for now. God has given us his son. He's not holding out on us at all. He has shown, there's no greater way for him to display his love for us. He is not holding out on you. So if God will graciously give us all things, then who will bring any charge against them whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? So we got charges, we got justification, and we've got condemnation. Now, condemnation institutes you have some authority, right? You're like, that's, that's who does the condemning. We're not going to worry about that right now. Charges, accusation. There is one who charges. There is one who accuses. There is one who tries to condemn. And we get a picture of this one from the Apostle John. When he first started following Jesus, he was very young. He was a teenage boy. And then he lived to be an old man. He was the only one of the 12 not to die at the hands of someone else. And in chapter 12 of his revelation, his vision he has, he has this vision of a war that happened in heaven. Angel Michael and his angels fought against Satan and his angels. And they battled out, and Michael and his crew won. They won the fight. And then this is what John heard after that. It says, then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. This would be Jesus. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them of our God day and night has been hurled down. They, meaning the faith, the followers of Jesus, they have triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. 
there is one who hurls accusations day and night. And some, and he hurls them to God. Okay, accusations about you to the Father. And sometimes we overhear that conversation. It's in our head, right? You can hear it. Oh, you're not good enough. Oh, you're just used up. You're trash. You're no good. Why can't you be more like? I wish you were more like. And it's memories and it's self-conversation. It's this, this thing you say to yourself. And it's like you're, you're, hearing, you're hearing the accusations of our adversary. And what's interesting, Paul talks about this person who brings us charges. How does Paul describe the one who will bring any charge? Who then is the one who condemns? He's no one. He's no one. And not in that there's no one who brings charges because your past, right? Your, your memories, your anxiety, your self-accusing thinking, they're all someone. But they are no one compared to Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So we've got one accusing you before God day and night, and it's in your own head sometimes. And then you've got Jesus interceding for you on behalf of you. And I often or sometimes I wonder, what does this look like? If I could picture this, if I could see this play out, I picture the courtroom. And God the Father in his black robe is on the throne. Now, I doubt there's an American flag with fringes behind him, right? Because this, this is a global, it's no nations, right? This is the kingdom. So the king is on the throne. The judge is seated at the throne. And there's this prosecuting attorney, the devil, Satan. And he has his witnesses. And he builds his case and he hurls accusations. And then we've got my defense attorney, Jesus who just happens to be the son of the judge. Like, lucky me, lucky you. Not only is he the son of the judge, the judge absolutely hates the prosecutor. Like, they don't see eye to eye on anything, and he cannot stand him. So the prosecutor hurls his charges. The witnesses are called to the stand. And Jesus and the judge listen to this. And the prosecution rests. And Jesus has like the easiest job in the world. It's not because I'm not guilty. Right? Jesus hears all the accusations. The father hears them and Jesus is like, yeah, Ken did that. He is 100% guilty of that. And he did that and he did this and he did this. Not to mention, you forgot these things over here too. But I took the consequence. Yeah Ken, yeah, Ken falls short all the time. The very thing he hates to do, he doesn't want to do, yeah, he does it. And all the good he wants to do, yeah, he doesn't do that either. But I took care of that. I'll take the blame. I'll pay the fine. Yeah, Ken is a mess, but Ken is my mess. And the judge brings down the gavel. He says, you're innocent. Maybe he says you're guilty, but Jesus paid the fine. Yeah, Ken, you're guilty, but Jesus has got it. Don't worry about it. There is no scale of justice that's being played out. It's mercy. It's mercy because of Christ. You may be guilty, 
but you are not separated from the love of Christ. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? These things aren't rhetorical. I think Paul's trying to give us some perspective. Hey, no matter the hardship, no matter the challenges, if Jesus is your defense attorney, who shall separate you from the love of God that is in Christ? Shall the troubles of this life or the troubles that come with the faith? Paul then, this is where Paul goes back and he quotes Psalm 44. He says, as it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Such an interesting dichotomy, right? Who's going to separate from the love of Christ? Oh yeah, but you are like sheep that are going to be slaughtered. Paul's just saying like, look, this is just how it goes. The people who want to be faithful to God will face minor hardships, major hardships, and everything in between. But even though you are considered as a sheep to be slaughtered, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And think about this word, conquerors, being spoken to the audience in Rome. Some guys up there reading this letter to the church in Rome, the most powerful city on the planet, and the most powerful empire where the most powerful person resides. They are the power brokers. They are the conquerors. They come in when, after their victory in battle, right? The, the white chariot and the white horses and, and the pomp and circumstances and the general or the Caesar proclaim their gospel of victory over a foreign enemy. They proclaim their victories. They understand conquerors. Paul's like, yeah, all that stuff's great. In the kingdom of Jesus, you are more than a conqueror. In Christ, you have complete and total victory. And that victory may not come when you want it, how you would expect it, how you would like it, but it is guaranteed. And the question is, how does this add up? What's, how does this math work? Like all day long, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, and yet we are more than conquerors. We're not more than conquerors because we've knocked it down and we've had victory after victory in our life. We're not more than conquerors because we've overcome and overcome and overcome. And we're not less than conquerors because we've fallen short in our life. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's not about you. It's not about what you've done or what you've failed to do. You are more than a conqueror through him who loves you. Paul continues, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am convinced. Can you say that? Are you convinced that nothing will be able to separate me, me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Are you convinced that if and when life goes sideways, that you can fill in the blanks of what are these things? present or the future, powers, height. Can you say with Paul 
that nothing will separate you from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus. Let me fill in some blanks. For I am convinced that even though the love of my life will soon pass away, for I am convinced that even though I have just buried my husband, I am convinced that even though a day doesn't pass that I missed the child that was taken too soon, for I am convinced that no force or power in the spiritual realm, for I am convinced that no amount of anxiety or depression or insecurity, for I am convinced that no amount of self-harm or suicidal thoughts, for I am convinced that although the future is filled with uncertainty and navigating the life choices as you prepare to leave your home, for I am convinced that the heartache you experience as your nest empties, for I am convinced that whatever political party reigns, for I am convinced that no height will be so great, I am convinced that no low will be so low, nor a distance too far. I am convinced that nothing else, nor anything else will be able to separate me. I am convinced that nothing will be able to separate you. I am convinced that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Are you convinced that no matter how difficult or no matter how doubtful you might feel, don't quit. Are you convinced that you are more than a conqueror? You can't lose. You can't. And why can't you lose? You can't lose because you are loved. And how confidently could you live your life if you embrace the fact that you are loved more than you could possibly know? You are loved more than anyone has ever loved you, any flesh and blood person. You are loved more than any amount of love you have poured out. You cannot begin to grasp how much you are loved. That you and I, that we, we are one of billions of almost innumerable people who have ever lived on this speck of dust that is suspended in a sunbeam. We're not insignificant on this seemingly insignificant planet. You are loved by the one who created it all. What would your life look like? What would your thought life look like? Would you have the courage to reconcile those broken relationships, to forgive the inexcusable? What would your life look like if you lived like you believe that you are loved by God more than you could possibly know? And I don't know if you've noticed throughout all of chapter eight, this is like the third or fourth week of chapter eight. There are no instructions in this entire chapter. There are no commands to be obeyed. Paul doesn't tell us to do a thing. He spends this chunk of the letter, this crescendo of the good news that Jesus came, lived, died, resurrected, ascended, and is returning. He spends his whole time just trying to remind us of who we are in Christ. So I have no practical application for you today. 
but it's just a truth that you need to receive. And it's, it's hard to remember. You may have received it 20 years ago and then forgot about it a little later. And then you remembered it again. And now you're forgetting it. But this is something that you must be, must embrace. And it's a truth for you to be convinced of. Are you convinced? So as we've done throughout this whole series, we have opened our service with reading the text of the day. We didn't do that today. We're going to read it at the end. And sometimes we don't read it. We just listen and we try to have this special cadence. What I want you to do today is I ask you to please read it because I want you, for your benefit, to hear these words coming out of your mouth and hearing them with your ears. So please stand with me if you're able and in Prescott Valley, keep you doing the same. And let's not worry about cadence and sticking together. What I want you to do is I want you to read it like you believe it, like you actually believe that what God says is true. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against them whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long, considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Father, thank you so much that you have gone to inexhaustible lengths to show us your love for us. If there was some other way to express your love beyond creation and miracles and the death, burial, and resurrection of your son, you'd have done it. But you've laid all your cards on the table. You have spent yourself in every way to convince us of this truth that is so hard to keep in our grasp. And I pray that you would continue to try to remind us and that with one another, that as we form relationships and and that they wouldn't just be Sunday gathering relationships, but these would be relationships that would remind us of what we have in your son. And I pray that we would uh, over, help us overcome our unbelief as we will go through ebbs and flows and stages of remembering it better from one time to the next. But I pray that we would be a people who are convinced of the truth that nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it is in his wonderful name that we pray. Amen.
Amen. And thank you so much for joining us today here at the Quad City Podcast. Hey, our desire is that we would each look more and more like Jesus every day, week, month, and year. And we know that that doesn't just come from learning more about him and his word, but by actually applying it to our lives today. We hope that you take this message that you heard today and apply it to your life in a way that makes you honor him. Well, thanks again for joining us today. Be sure to download the Quad City app and we will see you again next time.